This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, not one step back, we're on the forced march at the generous gunpoint of our most loyal patrons. Victor R. has chosen two great pieces by the anarchist-turned-Bolshevik Victor Serge, Planned Economies and Democracy from 1944-45 and 30 Years After the Russian Revolution from 1947. So Serge talks about a kind of seismic shift in the mode of production that is going to have to follow the interwar period that results in a kind of more collectivized state, not just in um, the Soviet Union, but in the West, like a more collectivized political class. We should give some background on Serge. Yeah, someone should explain who Victor Serge is. He's from Belgium. He's born in Brussels. Arrived in Petrograd, apparently, in the beginning of 1919, and ended up joining the Bolsheviks and then later the Comintern. So this guy, like, went to Russia after it popped off, and then he bounced. I've had a couple of five years, Memoirs of a Revolutionary. I've never actually got around to reading it, but apparently he ended up in all of the right places at the right times in terms of what was going on, you know? He hopped around all the different like revolutionary moments, and he's supposed to cover a lot of that in his memoirs. For the purpose of this podcast, I wish I'd gotten around to reading it at some point, but time makes fools of us all. Indeed. Let's see, he was in Belgium and France and Mexico. One of the ways that he's invoked most often is by Trotskyists to be like, look, even this anarchist knows that Lenin and Stalin aren't the same. And so that's where I encountered Victor Serge for the first time, and where a lot of like, you know, People around, I don't know, ISO or something like that would run into Victor Serge. What we were asked to read were these two really splendid, interesting articles. There's two tendencies of thought here, and it seems like his inner anarchists and his inner, you know, Trotskyists or whatever are at war. Yeah, especially with somebody like this, it's hard to abstract a lot. And because this is somebody who was, you know, profoundly engaged with like the history of the time that he lived in. And a lot of the stuff he's grappling with are like, immediate practical questions and it's not something that's kind of being examined in a lab you know at a distance so i want to be more charitable in instances like this because i mean i like his stuff anyway but like he was basically an active you know committed revolutionary and he was basically trying to figure this out kind of as he went along i know it gets to stuff where he you know kind of down in the soviet union for entirely understandable reasons and probably there's some theoretical overreach there but you know given everything he'd been through it's totally understandable why he arrives at the point he arrives at so do you want to like take each of these on i was more interested in planned economies and democracy just because i found surge writing at the end of world war ii such an interesting frame Serge is trying to delineate exactly, so where from Bolshevism did Stalinism come from, and is Bolshevism responsible for it, or, or there's a kind of broader conversation about the Bolsheviks that I think he inspires, but I also, I also really like the specifics of planned economies and democracy. I think he oversells certain things, um, 
but he's right that there's going to be these technological changes that make an economy much different than classical free market capitalism and the kind of large civil service involved in that as well. He makes it sound to me like he's expecting like basically the entire like rebuilding of Europe to be something more along the lines of almost like a Soviet style planned economy, which yeah, I'm sure it was to a certain extent in the East, but he almost seems to ignore like the broader like geostrategic considerations at play here. He doesn't really see the Marshall Plan coming. His reading on it is very abstract. Let's go to the quote. This is from Planned Economies and Democracy. To what extent will the continuation of capitalist private property under its traditional guises be possible? To what extent will the continuation of the profits of the privileged classes, even limited, regulated, and controlled, be possible? The rigging of constitutions, statistics, and plans can only play a secondary role here. The bombed-out workers' slums can hardly be replaced with new slums returned to the ownership of rich individuals, many of whom will be known to have collaborated with fascism or Nazism. So far, this quote is very optimistic, but he goes on to say, the same assumption can be made concerning the rigorous methods of control and socialization of the great industrial trusts as an unavoidable penalty for their role in the establishment of fascism. The reconstruction of these industries in conformity with the requirements of peace, even of a provisional one, will need the conscious effort of entire nations. There is no doubt with the support of the conservative forces the world over, they will be very influential in the political struggle, but the very nature of things, that is to say, the needs of production and the existence of entire nations will be weighted against the stockholders instead of finding themselves leading the development of production as they did throughout the 19th century. The great European capitalists, weakened and discredited by the war they helped engender, will find themselves in opposition to development and to the clear public interest. This is where I think he starts to get more perceptive, you know, because I find the neo-fascism stuff overwrought. We should note as well as the power of money or any symbolic paper disappears, he's kind of saying that people are less illusioned. Is that really true, though? Uh, mm, I don't know. I get, like, a vibe from it. Shatmanite bureaucratic collectivism where, like, just sort of, like, capitalism and, like, deformed Soviet communism just completely blends into each other and to the two societies become indistinguishable from each other. Well, his explicit theory is that Stalinism and fascism, like specifically Nazism, are more or less the same social system. And then you're right, Rosa, that capitalism will kind of drift into that. I actually think he contradicts the reading he's talking about, yes, both West and East here. If the control of the planned economy must ultimately be taken by representatives of the traditional ruling classes, that is, the administrators, the technicians, and stockholders of the great corporations, the military caste which serves them, the monarchies, the intellectuals, the fellow travelers, it follows that true democracy is impossible. By democracy, I mean here more or less honest consultations with the people in an electoral system, freedom of expression, the right to organized opposition, and the right of the individual not to fear disappearing in the night he makes criticisms or hold opinions contrary to the interests of the ruler. In a word, civil liberties would become impossible, and neo-fascism would take up the guise of traditional fascism. But the camouflage of the exploitation of labor by impersonal and anonymous market forces tends to disappear. The mechanism of development, production, consumption is laid bare, and from that moment no free electoral exercise can continue to maintain the power of the privileged classes. For those classes, then, all freedom of the press and all free expression constitute an immediate and revolutionary danger. Elections become one way. 
and access to information is controlled by the state, whilst individual resistance is physically smashed. The little that we know of the present state of the mind of the European masses tends to the conclusion that they are moving consciously and with ever greater awareness in the opposite direction. He does predict the breakdown of legitimacy that we were talking about earlier. You know where it does play out like this, like Jake said, is in Eastern Europe. He's right about Eastern Europe. It takes decades, but I think he's just perceiving that there is an emerging contradiction in the state between its public interest and its private nature. I think you're reaching here. I gotta be honest. How about this? It's a reach to say that this stuff applies to the post-war welfare states of Western Europe and to the neoliberal technocratic order or whatever. But like, I mean, I see where you're going with this. It's just that he thinks that there's going to be a displacement of market mechanisms, which is very much not what happens. What he's predicting more happened in terms of like Amazon and the, just the kind of breakdown of antitrust. Um, I think he's wrong about what's going to happen in the near term, but he talks about a growing antagonism between the state as the manager of the bourgeois mode of production and its class nature. I, I really think he is kind of picking up on something bigger. Yeah, I gotta disagree. I mean, I think capitalists are very well represented in the state, and there are plenty of formal democratic mechanisms and free elections that are available to people. But, you know, what he doesn't predict is what would later be termed like inverted totalitarianism, Mm -hmm. where everything is pretty well locked down, but that's just because they basically gamed the system so that you have the appearance of democracy and the appearance of choices and this and that, but really most of the all-important things have been decided in advance by, you know, the ruling class, basically. I guess I thought that was what he was saying, though. That Read sympathetically, he's saying that the state has exactly the antagonism between public and private functions Marx predicted in the 1840s, that it's going to have to adopt this kind of woke rule alongside rubber stamp elections that will increasingly be perceived as such. And I didn't get that from what he said here, but... I think you can read him as sort of like predicting like high Keynesianism, like in high okay. social democracy, essentially. There's, like, concessions to workers. There's just a better mode of living standards for working people, that sort of thing. And the economy is, like, sort of playing cooperatively with the capitalist class through, like, the state, mm. trying to work together a bit. There were sectors of capital that were in opposition to this kind of highly industrial Keynesian regimes That would come into greater political prominence later. But that was just one faction of the capitalists. Essentially coming into prominence due to like the falling rate of profit, basically smashing the fantasies of Keynesian economists of the time through stagflation. But we're getting very far away from what he's talking about. At best, he's making a sort of one-dimensional man argument, if we're going to argue in this direction. But I think, you know, yeah, that's doing some violence to the text and reading way too much of what we want into it. I really don't think it's far-fetched to say that he's perceiving some shift in the underlying technical stuff in the mode of production at the end of World War II and understands that something about bourgeois politics has exhausted itself from that quote that we went through in the interwar period. But who couldn't see that at the time? I mean, yeah, I mean, he was a tremendously perceptive person, and I, I don't think that that's unique to him but what is unique to him what is interesting about him and like i said i think these essays it's almost like they're at each other because in this essay 
He does the thing that ISO bots are not reading him for by saying that the Bolsheviks started apologizing and constructing totalitarianism in the early 20s. He's someone that fought for the revolution that says basically like a year after I came, you had the top Bolsheviks laying the groundwork for fucking Stalinism and something that he compares to Nazism. That's pretty spicy. He did try to distance himself from that kind of like Hannah Arendt style, like totalitarian critique. Like his thing about Serge, I think that he understands as somebody who acted within history and who was an active, committed revolutionary. Like I think he sees the contingency that exists in history and exists in the world. You know, he's not somebody who's going to sit here and try and draw like a straight one to one line from Lenin. I mean, he did write a book, you know, Lenin contra Stalin, but like he. He understood that it wasn't some preordained outcome. It technically, yeah, it started in 1917, but like there were a manifold possibilities in front of the revolution. It didn't have to end with Stalin. It didn't have to end with Mustache Man. He puts it in 1920, where things really all go wrong. It's useful to just flag those things. It usually gives you an ideological ballpark of where people are coming from. And so putting it around 2021, he's slightly earlier than most Trotskyists. Yeah, I'd like to introduce his quote, from, from Lenin to Stalin in 1937 to this conversation where he talks about the germ of Stalinism. That's also in the 30 Years essay as well, but go on. It is often said that the germ of all Stalinism was in Bolshevism at its beginning. Well, I have no objection. Only, Bolshevism also contained many other germs, a mass of other germs, and those who lived through the enthusiasm of the first years of the victorious socialist revolution ought not forget it. To judge the living man by the death germs with which the autopsy reveals in the corpse, and which he may have carried in him since birth, is that very sensible? He's trying to thread a very interesting, difficult needle with responsibility for Stalinism. Yeah, I mean, you can look back at and pinpoint and go, okay, maybe if we'd done this differently, Stalin couldn't have done this, or he wouldn't have led to that, you know? But the problem is, they talk about the fog of war. There's also a fog in politics and history. There's areas of uncertainty that we just can't know, you know? And so, you have to be careful against, I think, over-theorizing these kind of things. I appreciate what you're saying, Jake, because, you know, I've started to take another look at the word totalitarianism. uh, Because I've, for, like most Marxists, just sort of took it, uh, like, this is an ideological word. It basically only serves to confuse. There's nothing really worth defending there. But as time has gone on, and I've gotten maybe a little more and more anxious about tankies, Stalinists, its import has started to dawn on me a bit more. And uh, I'm not Hannah Arendt. I'm not a liberal. I'm a revolutionary Marxist. If I, you ever make that point to somebody that, meh, you know, it's not like the fascists didn't literally use the Bolsheviks as, like, a map. So, I, I just wanted to, like, push back on, like, making the one-to-one comparison with the yeah, fascists and the Bolsheviks, because I don't think he actually does that, per se. He says that their class character is essentially different. The fascists are cooperating with the capitalist class in terms of their planning, where the Bolsheviks do not really have that sort of situation in terms of cooperation. I think it's more of like a bureaucratic collectivism uh, situation going on. But the point of that theory is that the underlying structure, even if the rationales they've developed are different, the underlying structure is the same. Even to the the, the point where I think he undersells the amount that 
uh, fascism had markets in it and had, you know, wage form. I feel like the way that they emerged were very different. He wouldn't disagree. Like, that's part of his theory, right. is that they come from different places. Well, fascism extends out of the, the petty bourgeoisie as a, pol- a political movement, quote-unquote, representing the petty bourgeoisie. One thing that, like, does kind of bother me about the term totalitarianism is I feel like on a certain level it kind of it kind of like buys into the propaganda of these regimes about themselves where it's this thing about like oh this the state has like reached and encompassed every single aspect of a person's life in the country and it's like that's why the term was like generally dropped in like the 70s in terms of like studying like these states and only picked up again by like postmodern philosophers and critiquing liberalism in terms of like reflecting like trying to find how totalitarianism exists within a liberal society and yeah the term isn't really useful for particularly studying like north korea etc these sort of states because it glosses over like major differences between like fascism and deformed communism and generally buys into the sort of propaganda it's well, yeah, basically I mean, a surface level analysis. Well, that's, okay, kind of, right. that's, that's like that's the contemporary context that I think gives people a knee jerk reaction to the term because it's sort of used like famines, right? Like they're not actually interested in like the historical reasons for the famines. It's just a way to just paint it all together, you know. Same with totalitarianism. It's a way to basically attach Stalin to Hitler in anything besides that atrocious trade deal from the thirties. But but you can't like say this about Victor Serge. That's what makes this very interesting. Victor Serge is not doing the same thing that these other you know liberal theorists or, or reactionary theorists, whatever. He's trying to draw out something that went wrong with something he fought for. I don't think that we can like just do this anymore with the word totalitarianism. There is a really solid, defensible reason people resort to it, and it's to specify. What about the 20th century high authoritarian regimes? You know, what, what made them especially sort of degrading forms of social control? I think one of the things that's perceptive about his idea of totalitarianism is he seems to understand that there is kind of enduring global unity of political economy in and between the, like, the socialist states and the capitalist states. And that even applies to fascist state and the USSR interacting. I don't think that it's necessary to mi- for totalitarianism to mean, and I don't think he's saying that they're the kind of same outcome exactly, but they have, through their nature as states, they became allies at certain points. They were just trying to buoy each other against the allied powers. At the end of World War II, suddenly you have these two ruling classes, like, carving up a continent they just waged war over, or several continents. There's just something Serge is picking up on that is more than the, like, liberal totalitarianism critique. There's one passage in particular. At some point, we should define what he means, since it's such a contested term, and he does give a definition. Oh yeah, actually, it's right at the end of this passage. Perfect. I'm going to read this passage. The great totalitarian systems burst onto the scene during this period as if called upon to respond to the triple necessity to plan the economy, the latent but undeclared international civil war, and the impending world war. It was revolutionary Russia, led by the great figures of historic socialism that first took up the newly acquired methods of organized capitalism of the belligerents of 1914 through 18, 
and became the first society to go down this road. Bukharin's book, The Economy of the Transition Period, which was written in 1920, and was, it is true, severely criticized by Lenin, can be considered a perfected apology for totalitarianism from a sincerely socialist perspective. The same spirit inspired Trotsky's book Terrorism and Communism in the following year, as well as the declaration by Lenin conceding to Russian society a certain economic liberty, the new economic policy, but refusing it any form of political freedom. From its origins, Soviet totalitarianism is the regime of a revolutionary camp under siege, with a domestic state of siege in force throughout the country. Whatever the lofty intentions of its founders, it is characterized first of all by a planned economy, secondly by rationing, thirdly by state control of labor and the trade unions, fourthly by a monopoly of political power, fifthly by thought control, and sixthly by terror. I mean, that's like a ghost pepper level of spicy take. Actually, I haven't read either of those two books in question, so I can't really speak to that claim. Terrorism and communism, I, I will give them that. It's pretty hardcore. He's writing trollishly. In retrospect, it does not look good. And it makes the latter Trotsky look like a hypocrite. I honestly agree. Basically, Trotsky didn't really learn his lesson about like the importance of internal democracy until after he got in the solid boot, just straight kicked in his yep. ass. <laughs> yeah, yep. that's what it usually takes people to rediscover. This is like a fair characterization of like Soviet power in that period. Sure. I mean, how does that fuel the concept? So he's basically saying like this form of self-presentation of the state and management of the economy is something that like what Germany and Italy and maybe Japan. I mean, how much Japan tried to imitate it, but how much those countries tried to imitate it or he says to a lesser extent, Italy, but mostly Germany. I mean, Hitler used to market himself. I mean, some people described him as like the German Lenin. So, yeah, I mean, there was a syncreticism to fascism. I mean, we, we always knew that. I think it was Goebbels and some of the more like socialist, quote unquote, and like Strasserist, like national socialists were really hoping that Nazi Germany would look more like Bolshevism than like super Weimar, like in terms of e economics. But in the end, like, the Strasserites basically got the Knight of the Long Knives treatment. Yeah. Well, got the Knight of the Long Knives, and what Hitler did was, like, privatizing, like, a number of different industries that were under state control and doing some limited Keynesian, like, economic planning that was mostly cooperative with the Nazis. The category of totalitarianism kind of glosses over the major differences between, like, you know, capitalist-style planning, Keynesian sort of regime, which is basically cooperative. The capitalists are kind of taking part and are have, like, a major voice in it. And the sort of just straightforward economic planning of, like, the Soviet Union. And Victor Serge makes the distinction between the two. And I, I, I just think it's been, like, sort of, like, bulldozered in the conversation. I, I don't know. Let me read what he says the important differences are. Nevertheless, there are important differences between totalitarian systems which spring from revolutionary circumstances and those issuing from counter-revolution. In the first case, the old privileged classes are annihilated. The complete collectivization of the means of production takes over. Parvenus from the working classes become the new governing layer, and a psychological tradition of socialism persists. 
The fact that this tradition is visibly betrayed by the regime puts the regime dangerously in contradiction with itself, but at the same time, allows it to play both ends against the middle in its foreign policy, and to appeal to both revolutionary and conservative aspirations. By contrast, in the case of the Nazi counter-revolution, the central role of powerful capitalist interests in creating and supporting the regime results in a situation of dual power between the trusts and the party bureaucracy. Thus, the regime is less homogenous, and the anti-scientific and irrational nature of conservatism is one of its basic flaws. Thus, a racist and visionary ideology made it commit irreparable errors so that contempt of the Slavs and unbridled anti-Marxism led to the Third Reich's aggression against the USSR. That's all pretty accurate. If you want to use the word totalitarianism with like those very specific distinctions, yeah, that's fine. I mean, I don't know how much value added there is to that word except in this context where it's just to say that the Stalinist regime sucks and is shitty in a variety of ways. How useful like totalitarianism is as a concept is something I find questionable. I think there's something underlying here that he's perceiving in terms of the domination of capital, right? Because I think there's this line often that fascism is the last resort of capitalism. And, and I, I think really fascism has its own petty bourgeois basis. You know, when capitalists needed a last resort, Sometimes they turn to social democracy, too. But one of the reasons Stalin was surprised by the invasion of the Soviet Union was that he had kind of made the calculation that German capital had this still this predominance over what the state was going to do. He didn't realize the parallel domination over political economy going on. Well, he was also fixated on British imperialism, and he was convinced that that's who was out to get him. Absolutely. And that has to do with kind of myopically seeing capitalism as as the enemy and not understanding that fascism could be a genuinely anti-capitalist so as to be so thoroughly anti-communist, petty bourgeois movement. Petty bourgeois movement isn't going to be thoroughly anti-capitalist. I would say anti-bourgeois. Right. They had enough domination in the state over the traditional bourgeoisie that they, they had to play along, basically. Yes and no. Like, I can definitely concede that the initial movement and the ideology itself was anti-bourgeois. It's generally aimed at finance capital, and it was a movement of the petty bourgeois. But at the same time, like they couldn't really be anti-bourgeois when they got into like power. Right. It can only make this this temporary inroad into anti-capitalism. It can't go all the way and sustain domination of capital like Stalin could. But there was that parallel temporary domination, I think, is maybe what Serge is picking up on by talking about, quote-unquote, totalitarianism, which isn't really, I'm not that wed to totalitarianism as the term for this, but I think he's perceiving something. Yeah, I feel like the Night of the Long Knives basically cements the end of Nazism as an anti-bourgeois movement and just sort of an uncomfortable compromise between like the party regime and the capitalists at that point. Right, but it ends up getting Hitler the party basis to really bully German capital in a way that I think Stalin underestimated. Yeah, I do want to agree that he blurs over some of the interesting economic differences between high Hitlerism, you know, like even when Hitler has the most like power over the bourgeoisie that he does. And, you know, even some of the less high stages of Stalinism. Like, you know, like, even then, there's important differences, way ownership works, etc. 
overall, I do think this stands. And I mean, look, I'll go to bat for being able to use the word totalitarianism to mean this. Because I think what Surgeon tends to do here is make a political point about yeah. how bad <laughs> Stalinism really is. This is a fair characterization for the most part. I mean, I just don't think you can use this to rehabilitate the concept of totalitarianism. That's all I'm saying. I disagree. I think politically speaking, it's important for Marxists to take on a much higher form of freedom. Like, just take that seriously, and specifically not in the way that Stalin pretends that, you know, restricting this and that has transcended bourgeois freedom. Actually, existing socialism has its own political economy. Yeah, this isn't like a strong work of political economy. I think we're all on the same page there. The import that he gives this term is political. We've come to as much common ground as we're going to. He brings up that he doesn't think that there would be like revolutions similar to the one in Russia after what happened with Stalin because it was just too awful. Oof. Clearly wrong, and I, I don't even think that's necessarily bad per se, it's sort of mixed in my view. Like, on the one hand, it was important in decolonizing good portion of the world, and this would lead to nations like China just improving their standards of living overall, and like some gains in the third world just through like nationalizing land, even though eventually all those regimes would collapse into what Maoists and like others call neocolonialism. I believe those revolutions had their positives in terms of like liberating people from the grip of imperialism and colonialism, even though like they mimic the policy of industrialization that was ultimately disastrous for like the people living under it and the immediate effects of it. I believe Mao tried to pursue a different path in terms of like the way he dealt with agriculture, but it's still the rapid pace of it ultimately led to famines the rapid pace and like Mao did kind of share like stalin's overly optimistic vision of increase in productivity that you would get from collectivization and it's almost just like well if we do it faster that's more better because there's more of it you know <laughs> i i think it would probably suffer from like you know just the lack of actual information that could be received by the party heads due to just you know the totalitarian well, not total uh, the, just the sort of authoritarian nature of the party regime making like just accurate information impossible because everyone's afraid to tell them the kind of accurate information in terms of production and that sort of thing some issues with the calculation problem etc just limit like production overall so you have like this sort of mix of like yeah they're liberated from imperialism China is now a world power, but at the same time, people suffered under like in rapid industrialization. China basically like has gone through like weird capitalist revisions and is now some kind of horrific monstrosity of like Dangism, Confucianism, and just authoritarian party structure. So where are we? I'm a little lost right now. <laughs> We're talking about the uh, the Stalinist revolutions that took place that. Uh, Serge said probably wouldn't. Uh, yeah, they happened because of colonialism and imperialism, which he didn't really take into account. Which is yeah, surprising well, given like the nature of the Russian Revolution itself in a relatively backward nation, I guess. We didn't talk much about 30 years after the Revolution, did we? No, we didn't. That's significant in all the ways that like 
this is the surge that is more well known. And I think this is one of the last things he ever wrote because uh, he died shortly after. And so this is his swan song. And, you know, it's a little gloomy. Um, fucking good reason. Worth reading. Yeah. Very worth reading. Highly recommend both of these. Whereas this one seems to feel like it's a little, little more self-conscious about legacy. Where the other text seems like it was like notes that were released by his estate or something. This one is definitely like, look, all these liberals will parrot Stalin and say that, you know, Stalin is, is the direct expression of Lenin. There's a great quote in there somewhere along the lines of, you know, it's not like he was continuing Trotsky's work by burning his books and shoving an ice pick in his head. Like, mm. Stalin murdered all the Bolsheviks, the old Bolsheviks, the, the leaders that made the revolution. You ever look at one of those maps of the Central Committee? It looks like a really thoroughly done, like, calendar. Well, that's why he sees it as a tragedy, right? Because if you saw, like, the origins of the revolution, like, this evil thing, it's like, well, the whole thing was just shitty. Whereas, mm -hmm. if it was this noble, you know, gateway to the future that ended up going down this awful blind alley slash fucking meat grinder, you know, that's even more outrageous and fucked up, and I think that's why he's still angry. You know, yeah. that's why he persisted yeah. too. You know, he was living in the USSR for a long time and was jailed and, you know, all kinds of crazy shit. And what had to have kept him going was that, you know, he knew what this was for. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, he would have just fucking blown his brains out or stuck his head in an oven at some point. You know what right. I mean? So that, uh, he, he did remain a committed revolutionary until the end, even though he understood, you know, what went catastrophically wrong respect oh i don't know like just respect to that like this is really someone putting their money where their mouth is and and, and this is a good pairing because this one is much more defensive of the bolsheviks the early bolsheviks doesn't implicate them for stalin or totalitarianism at all right <laughs> with the exception of the cheka he he makes basically the argument that well you know the cheka led to the gpu and the gpu was used to murder all the bolsheviks so that's a very germy kind of argument there but other than that, he basically puts it towards um, the new economic policy and the latter stages of war communism. It seems like he's, he's hinting this idea that the Bolsheviks, in the kind of expediencies and selling out of democracy that they quote-unquote had to make, um, yeah. that they are responsible for Stalinism in some ways. By the end, I think he, he really sees the undemocratic earlier moves how, no matter how understandable, as having, you know, some determining influence in Stalin. Right, but he's putting the gloves on a little bit for this essay. I don't know. I, Serge, Serge definitely doesn't fall into the Leninist tradition to me. It's complicated. Very complicated. But I don't think he's anti-Leninist either. I think he's kind of trying to look beyond that. He's a post-Leninist or something? <laughs> Honestly, in this essay, he mostly sounds like a trot. Just uh, data. Like, he puts it at the end of 1920 or defends the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and basically doesn't mention any fudging with democracy around then. I don't know. I'm, his stuff on Kronstadt, I think, is pretty good. His stuff on Kronstadt's pretty good and better than most Trotskyists. Right. So I feel like he does have some perception of the earlier loss of tether to the people that the Bolsheviks experienced. 
he would talk to Trotsky, but he wasn't a Trotsky. You know what I mean? It's sort of like Bordiga, where it's like there are certain overlaps. Yeah, I don't see him as a Trotskyist. There's mm. certain overlaps, but... I think he like, really wanted to be differentiated. Well, like Bordiga, he refused to join the Fourth International. All right. The whole thing was wouldn't work. You know, that's another telling uh, indicator. And because, you know, these, these guys were peers. He had friendly conversation with Trotsky's uh, family at one point after the assassination, for example, but he wasn't an enemy of Trotsky, but I, I think he wanted to distinguish himself. Yeah, while he was living in Italy, too, he was also friends with uh, Antonio Gramsci and like a few other major Italian figures within the Communist Party. So I, I don't necessarily think he was like tied down to like specifically Trotskyism. He's still coming as, like, an anarchist. Yeah. He's certainly a Bolshevik, but also an anarchist. Which is an interesting perspective to be presented with, for sure. I like the little shout-out to the left Mensheviks and Martov that these people were basically the only ones that actually believed in democracy. Everyone else was assuming some kind of dictatorship, which I think is probably broadly true, like, in Russian politics at that time. Like, even the mainstream social democratic tradition in the hands of the Russians, the regular Mensheviks. Certainly, it was just true about the socialist revolutionaries. It's kind of a deflection. It's kind of not dealing with something that I wish he dealt with, but I don't think he's wrong about that. And that puts any question of democracy at that time in, in sincere question. Like, in, in trouble, I should say. Yeah, I mean, he, he concludes towards the end of, like, the dictatorship of the proletariat will probably not appear in the future oh yeah that's a deep cut this is goes um let's see i do not think the dictatorship of the proletariat will reappear and be viable in the struggle of the future no doubt there will be revolutionary dictatorships of one kind or another in the future i'm convinced that the role of the workers movements in these cases will be to guarantee the democratic character of those regimes but not just for the sake of the proletariat alone but for the sake of all workers and even nations in this sense proletarian revolution is no longer to be our aim the revolution that we're waiting to serve can only be socialist in the humanist sense of the word, or more precisely, socializing through democratic, libertarian means. So, uh, join your local <laughs> DSA chapter, kids. Uh, Victor Serge approves. Yeah, that kind of comes off as like weird, maybe leaning towards reformism, like in the same way that Karl Kotsky like slowly abandons the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Let me just follow up on what he says after that. Beyond the borders of Russia, the Bolshevik idea of the party has failed completely. <laughs> I think that's completely. The variety of interests and psychological backgrounds has made impossible the grouping of such a homogenous cohort of militants, all dedicated to the ideas so nobly praised by the poor Bukharin. Centralization, discipline, and guided ideology should inspire in us a healthy suspicion, no matter how badly we need an organizational framework. Yeah, that's solid. Yeah, it comes close to Mike McNear's criticism of party of the new type. It's saying that uh, this dovetails with critique of Bolshevization that uh, Bordiga has, is I think apt, even though Bordiga is no peach himself. And, and you know what? I broadly agree, so maybe I should be in the DSA. Um, I don't think that the whole thing about the dictatorship of the proletariat not reappearing, yeah, I think that's problematic. Um, but what I can say is that I don't think that he would accept what we know today as democracy as being, you know, democracy. Like, if we're going to make a big fuss over the way that people use any specific word, it would be the way that people, in a genuinely pro-sort of authoritarian move, will throw the concept of democracy under the bus. Totally give it to this society. 
and then render it like something that we can't talk about or use and be serious about. I think that this point of view, when he says that, you know, the role of the workers' movements will be to keep these things democratic, you know, like whatever movement you want to substitute in there, that's the real deal. Whatever happens, whatever revolutionary regime comes about in the future, we're going to have to like be vigilant against it. Like future like revolutionary organizations need to be productively multi-tendency. You could see this a little bit in like the early, you know, the early Bolshevik party. Like there have to be ways for people and to have, you know, productive and functional disagreements. Um, and there needs to, of course, you know, there needs to be like a mass base as well. So, <laughs> yeah, it just comes down to the fact that it's very possible. And I think this is what Serge is picking up on that when you have kind of red Eurasia, even if you had had the kind of German revolution, um, that there would have been apparatuses and, and things in the regime that resulted that the serious Marxists would look at and go, this has to fall eventually. Like the historical beginnings of these revolutions have to be kind of moved beyond. I think he isn't advocating for you to join the DSA. I, I think he's saying that we have to put emancipation ahead of the left political state. The thing with abandoning the dictatorship of the proletariat is essentially he's abandoning any kind of concept of like class rule and that sort of thing in favor of something that is ultimately class collaboratory. It's less a dictatorship of the proletariat and more of a socialist society that they're aiming for in terms of like uniting humanity rather than specifically empowering that of the class. That is similar to what McNair does when he substitutes the Democratic Republic for a, uh, you know, for any kind of, quote, workers' government, quote, by which he means, I'm assuming, dictatorship of the proletariat. <laughs> yeah, but the thing with, like, the Democratic Republic is essentially, like, an actual Democratic Republic would end up going to represent the proletariat in most advanced countries, mm -hmm. and all, basically all countries now. That, that's why Marx and Engels pushed for it, essentially thought of it as the dictatorship of the proletariat and why they liked the Paris Commune as much as they yeah. did, despite maybe, it being made up of anarchists and Blunkists and Jacobins. Maybe I should scale my claims back a little bit because, yeah, he does sort of mention how the complex society makes a cast of maybe like Spetsy or whatever, like specialist, like managery types makes that something that needs to like be part of the society. So maybe it is more cross-class than I want to project. But yeah, certainly I think we're all on board with the no dick parole being kind of maybe like not the best part of that. Yeah, I mean, what he replaces it with is kind of vague too. Like he hasn't really... That's not, he hasn't really that isn't how I would phrase it, but I think he's maybe trying to say that it shouldn't be a dictatorship over the proletariat, hopefully. He doesn't say that. He doesn't like, say that. He he says like the dictatorship of the proletariat. Even he does have it in quotes, uh, so maybe that's what he really means. And if that's what he really means, then yeah, a hundo, no problem. This, alongside of in the previous paper, the claim that there won't be Leninist revolutions in the future. I think maybe you're right. Maybe that's the sense that he meant it. Then yeah, yeah. yeah. If that's what he means, then sure. I think the last part in which he talks about it being more humanistic and socialistic rather than proletarian. Does he say rather than proletarian? He doesn't. That be... And that's what makes me think Grant is probably right, because he is living 
with Lenin's concept of dictatorship of the proletariat, not with, you know, Marx's or Mike McNair's. So, you know what? If that's what he means, fuck it. I'm with it. I don't think he's saying what, like, say, Balabar would say is, like, selling the dictatorship of the proletariat as a concept. But he's an anarchist, so maybe he's... He's not on notes. I'm inclined to be sympathetic here. I understand where you're coming from, Rosa. I don't want to say reject the dictatorship of the proletariat either. Doesn't he say, like, in that quote, like, the working class influencing future revolutions, but... I think he's maybe saying, though, that maybe these post-revolutionary regimes, that the working class has to keep pressing against them to have an anti-political dimension against, quote-unquote, its own... Uh, state in order to actually exercise social power and for the state to actually wither away. I think what you mean by anti-political a lot, Grant, is kind of captured by what he means by uh, socializing through democratic libertarian means. A much fairer read than I was going to give him, honestly. I thought he was going end notes on it. I should say going Bakunin on it. Is that something he could have actually read? So I spent too much of this evening going to war with the idea of totalitarianism. I'm not prepared to take on a second front against anti-politics, so maybe we should look to wrap this up. Well, here, here, here's something that I wanted to read towards the end. Beyond the borders of Russia, the influence of this, quote, concentration camp universe was to block the development of socialism and social reorganization in Europe. Thus, the tragedy is no longer Russian alone. It is universal in proportion. The logical conclusion of this process seems to be the Third World War. Still, we mustn't resign ourselves to catastrophic outcomes as long as other possibilities are in sight. Now, clearly wrong that there's a third world war coming. But that last sentence, it's like, you know, it's like Captain Kirk and the Kobayashi Maru test. You know, never accept a no-win scenario. You know, don't just be like, well, I guess it's just going to collapse and go to shit. Try to avert the catastrophic outcomes. It's unfortunate that Serge, he only died like 50-something. Uh, yeah. Never got a chance to meet, like, the greatest of the Trotskyists, uh, Jay Posadas, <laughs> who had probably the ultimate never-say-die attitude. He was like, there's going to there's gonna be nuclear wars that wipe out everything, and that's the beginning. Or uh, the other great Trotskyists, LaRouche, yeah. Haley, just the greats. All the kings. When the Trotskyists send people, they're not sending their best. <laughs> Aren't, aren't those people all sort of like the best expression of people that always imagine catastrophic outcomes? That, oh shit, it's going to yeah. be, it's like Alex Jones or something, <laughs> yeah. you know? Or it's yeah. total eco-nihilism where shit, it's going to basically just wipe out everything. You I know? mean, it is though. I, I don't know, everyone's Uncle Ted now. Yeah, among a lot of people who study ecology, like they're getting more into Ted Kaczynski now. Like Makes sense to me. Yeah, that is kind of a uh, another sort of grim indicator. Yeah, yeah, but hey, listen, I don't want I don't want to just depress these listeners, okay? We have plenty to look forward to, folks. Yeah, um, we, we can reverse this. We have the tech to reverse ecological crisis. You know, we have nuclear power. We have all that. We just need... There. We just, you know... $1,000 a month. That's it for this week. Episodes like this one are made possible by Bonapartists like you. Check out patreon.com slash swampsidechats to take a look at our Bonapartist program and see what it takes to get your own custom episode. For some free ways to help out, like us on social media, 
leave a good review wherever you listen or reach out to us at swampsidechats at gmail.com Coming down the pipeline, we've got a towering stack of fabulous custom episodes to keep chipping away at and possibly the frenemiest in the enemy camp yet. Keep your boots clean, comrades.